Why do you say you feel trapped in a man's body? Well, sometimes I get the menstrual cramps real hard. Money point seven. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please, uh, for this afternoon's feature attraction. of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. This is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I am Ben Flanagan. Today we will take a look at the summer movie landscape, the impending release of Christopher Nolan's Inception, which holds the power to make Hollywood and audiences' dreams come true. And we talk about the state of film criticism. Joining us today is co-creator and co-host of the widely adored movie radio show and podcast out of WBEZ Chicago Public Radio, Film Spotting, which you can find at filmspotting.net. Adam Kempnar, it is an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the show. Guys, great to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, now you co-founded Film Spotting in March of 2005 with former co-host Sam Van Hallgren and now currently host alongside Maddie Robinson. And I only recently discovered the show on the recommendation of our friend Ben Stark, a longtime listener of your program. My first episode was either your Up in the Air Invictus Week or your Avatar Beatdown. Uh, and since then, I've really nearly melted my iPod by stockpiling it with virtually every single episode. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that my wife and I had our honeymoon over a month ago where we listened to film spotting all the way up to and from our drive to Charleston, South Carolina. So we were in great company. That's great. Yeah. And uh, there, look, there are literally thousands of podcasts out there that are dedicated to movies. Surfers, I mean, they really have their pick of the litter, yet film spotting was there almost at the dawn of the podcast mm-hmm. stage. I read when you read an article about Adam Curry, and that piqued your interest. Um, and it has remained incredibly popular worldwide. You have fans all over the globe. Yeah. And I'm interested, what do you think it is about film spotting? What do you think it is that you're accomplishing with the show where you've been able to sustain this fan base and continue to find new listeners? That's a really good question. I think um, there's a couple things. I, I think the first thing is is just consistency hopefully um i I know when sam and i started early on and maddie and i still have this approach we kind of feel like if we miss a week and we felt this way early on if we missed a week people would stop listening you know it's kind of thing where a lot of people say hey i'm going to start a movie blog or i'm going to start any kind of blog or um, a podcast or do some kind of show and it's going to be the greatest thing ever and they tell all their friends we're doing this great movie website and come read our stuff and then after two or three weeks, maybe they don't get the kind of feedback they want. Maybe enough people aren't listening or reading, and they, they kind of fade. Uh, you know, actually, there was a term in the podcasting world for a while called pod fading, um, where, yeah, they, they come out of the gate strong, and then it just goes away. And Sam and I said, you know what, we're, we're really doing this. We started this to force ourselves to watch a movie every week. That was really our only goal, was to force ourselves to watch at least one new movie a week and sit down and discuss it. And so with that in mind, then, we didn't have any larger concerns about who was listening or who wasn't listening and what the future of the show was going to be. And we just said, we're going to do it every week, just like it's a job. We're not going to miss, and uh, hopefully then the the quality will come from that as well, but we're just going to be consistent about it and people can count on it. I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing that you just can't count on, and Maddie and I have talked about this and Sam and I have talked about it before, is, is... you know, chemistry. Hopefully you just have some kind of connection with the person you're talking to that people respond to. And we get emails all the time from people who just, they enjoy the banter, they enjoy the back and forth, they enjoy the fact that they can tell that Maddie and I and Sam and I before him are genuinely really good friends. And they get the feeling that they're back in college listening to, you know, a conversation like the one they had. Um, with their friends on their floor, you know, talking about movies or talking about whatever. They, they kind of get transported back to that. Or if they're in college now, feel like they're, you know, kind of having that same experience. So, um, again, that's something you can't count on. We didn't even count on it. You know, Sam and I were friends, but we'd never done anything like this before. And when we started it, we didn't know if it would work or not. But we sat down for the first review, and literally within three or four minutes of the discussion, I was like, man, Sam's got some really interesting points, and he's making them well, and I I know how to respond to him, and this is actually clicking. And I knew from that moment that uh, it would work. And then when Sam left the show in September 2007, obviously that was was really tough to imagine doing the show with someone else, but Maddie was an old friend of of mine and of Sam's, and when he he sort of did his audition, um, we actually had to do it over the phone, 
but we did it over the phone just like we were doing a show and instantly that felt like we'd been doing it for for five years and, and it was always meant to be that way so i've been very lucky <laughs> to some extent that that i've had those guys as co-hosts and that we've we've been able to click and, and again that's something you just can't really count on but we've been lucky well, your fan base is unique in that it's international, but it's also made up of highly articulate critics in their own right who may or may not host their own podcasts and have this universal passion and knowledge for so many films, be they domestic or foreign, old or new. What kind of vindication does that give you guys, knowing that you're not only being heard, but also influencing film lovers to carry on civil two-sided conversations about the art form? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and, and, and a great point. I mean... That's been one of the most rewarding things for us, and I think another thing very early on that we were not afraid to put out there is we're not going to pretend that we know everything about film. We know that there are people out there who have uh, seen more movies than we have, who've read more movie books than we have, and that's fine. Um, we're hoping that we can still bring uh, something intelligent to the discussion and that we're going to generate some ideas that people are going to... Uh, be interested in hearing and considering and responding to, and that was always the goal. The, the goal of the show was always, we're not remotely interested in telling you what movies you should see. I don't know what your tastes are. I don't know what anybody's tastes are but myself, so I, I, I'm not really concerned with saying, you know, this is a film you have to go see or a film you, you shouldn't go see or spend your money on. I don't know that, so all I can really articulate is the experience I had with the film. And that's the, the same thing Maddie's trying to do and Sam before him. So that, I think, gets that conversation going um, in that way. People then respond to that. They respond to the fact that they know they're not being talked down to. They also know they're not being sort of, uh, you know, just given trivial information about this was good, this was bad, this sucked, this didn't. Those, those kind of questions really aren't our concern. And, and sometimes that's troubling, I, I think, for a few listeners who maybe some people, when they're new to the show, and they hear a review, and they kind of come out of the discussion 15 minutes later and say, I don't really know how they felt about that movie, you know, in terms of just summing it up, saying, oh, they liked it or didn't like it. And I always say that's actually a good thing. I mean, it might be just that we're not communicating that well, but I actually think that that's okay because my reaction to a film, uh, even if it's, you know, kind of just a, an action movie uh, that might be pretty straightforward, my reaction to a film usually can't be summed up just in a simple, that was good, that was bad, or whatever. So... You know, there, there is hopefully a little more nuance there, and if, if by the end of the discussion, if you want to know how I felt about it, well, you kind of just have to listen to the points I made and go, okay, you know, that's what he thought was compelling about the, about the film or interesting. Um, those are the things that, that didn't work for him or the things that, that made him think. Sometimes I'm not even bringing up things that I, I'm particularly positive or negative about. They just were things that made me curious or, or provoked a thought that I wanted to throw out to the listeners, and, and certainly... You know, again, early on when, when we started to get feedback where we started to see the people who were listening to our show, uh, just in terms of the average listener, but the feedback they were giving us and uh, how, how articulate it was and, and how, well, how well read these people clearly were and educated they were and, and the movies that they, that they had seen and the perspective they brought, that made us up our game a little bit. And actually one of the segments we do on our show are our marathon segments where we go back and pick a specific genre or a director or something and kind of just focus on that for six weeks or so, that was to fill in the holes of our, of our education. And, and that was really born out of the fact that, you know, we kept getting emails from listeners saying, oh, I can't believe you haven't seen this movie or haven't seen this movie. And, and early on it was some Westerns. Maddie, uh, actually Sam and I both admitted we, just, we didn't grow up watching a lot of Westerns. Our fathers did, but we didn't. And we, we always kind of avoided them, and we said, you know what, we're going to spend eight weeks just watching classic Westerns. And that was really just to make up for the fact that we felt so ashamed <laughs> that we hadn't seen these Westerns and all of our listeners had. So they really drive the show in that way, but then you're right to start getting feedback, and, and, and now we've got, we've got directors that listen to our show. Um, you know, and some of them have been on the show, David Wayne and Ed Burns and Ryan Johnson and, and, and John Badham, you know, who directed Saturday Night Fever, and it, that was one of the first bits of feedback we ever got was, he did an interview with a, a movie website, and he's like, yeah, I listened to the show in Chicago, and he was praising us. I was like, wait a second, the guy who directed Saturday Night Fever listens to our show? You know, and it's like, okay, we must, we must be doing something right. Uh, and again, it's, we're kind of trying to articulate what that is, but uh, 
to, to get that response and to know that those people out there listening is, is really overwhelming. Sure. One of the coolest things uh, when listening to your show is when you have these breaks and you come back into a segment and you have voicemails from Edward Burns or Ryan Johnson giving their top five movies or performances of the year. That's just a really uh, mm -hmm. neat aspect of your show. I really do appreciate that. And one thing I find pretty unique about film spotting, and this is not a bad thing at all, I, I think that um, this is rare. It, or it's rare on your show when either of you declares any single movie a flawless experience. You often right. you often say it wouldn't be film spotting unless you found something uh, to nitpick, or if you didn't yeah. find something to nitpick, even about a great film. Was that a conscious decision on your part while drafting the blueprint for your format, uh, that you'd be strict and sort of unafraid to use your red pen on anybody's paper? No, no, it really wasn't. Um, and and I, think, I think early on the only strategy we had at all, and this was uh, a Sam idea, and we, we abandoned it, in terms of it being a, a strict philosophy, something we did every show, but I think it still does, uh, it's there uh, in the back of our minds of every show. As he said early on, you know what, we should force ourselves to say something we liked about every movie, even if we hated it. And, and I think that is something that hopefully kind of set us apart and still does, is that, um, you know, we, we really actually don't, don't get much pleasure out of Stark. I think, I think a lot of people um, maybe do or they assume that that's what critics enjoy, that they love tearing apart a movie. But we, choose to only, we tend to only choose to review the movies we think we're going to like anyway. I mean, that's one of the benefits of not having you know, an editor saying you have to go see every bad movie that comes along. We decide which movies we want to see, and we pick the ones we think we're going to like the most and that are going to provoke the most discussion. So um, we don't we don't want to have a bad experience with a movie, and we don't want to tear it down. We have actually no fun in that. Now, sometimes you hate a movie so much that maybe some of those snarky moments come out, and, and, and that's inevitable, but that's really not, you know, what we're about. But that was something early on Sam wanted to do, was say, let's focus on actually something we liked about every film. And like I said, I think we still try to incorporate that a little bit. But in terms of it, it, it being flawless or not, it's just sometimes I, I actually I catch myself when I, when I use that line, um, you know, it's not perfect, but, you know, or something like that, or it's not flawless, but cause I, I feel like actually that's kind of a critical cliche, and it's kind of a crutch, and, and who cares about perfection, really? You know, I mean, who, what, it's art, you know, it's not like, it's not like you got a scorecard, and, you know, it's got a good beat, and I can dance to it, I give it a 10, it's not, that's not what it is, so I, I don't, um, sometimes I feel like I, I, I say that actually too much, but when I'm expressing that, people, when people write in sometimes and complain that, oh, you you nitpick this movie, all I can say is those are the things that went through my head when I watched the film, and those are the things that went through my head when the film was over, and I was trying to figure out how I felt about it, which is actually the way it usually goes. I mean, I don't take notes while the movie goes on. Um, I don't want to make the movie-going experience, movie-watching experience any more academic than it already is because I know I'm going to talk about it, so I just try to go in and let the movie wash over me, and, and, and then it, it's after the movie. It's in the, the 30 minutes right after, it's in the next two or three days right after that I try to actually figure out, okay, I know that, that movie really worked for me, or it really didn't, or I'm just kind of wishy-washy on it. Well, there's an explanation for that, too. You know, why, why was it that some things worked and some things didn't? And then it's about trying to, to come up with those things. And again, sometimes those things that seem like nitpicking to others, I'm not actually raising so much because I want to nitpick the film as I want people just to, I, I wonder if maybe even one person out there had the same thought or, or didn't have the same thought and finds that interesting, and then maybe that will be a jumping-off point for something else, you know? So I think it's just part of the, actually, it's just a byproduct of the, the format of the show, it being a, a discussion show where we can talk about a movie as long as we want, and it, it being a podcast, even though we're on the radio, I know that I can make edits or do what I need to do to get it down to 59 minutes for WBEZ. But for the podcast, the beauty of podcasting is that you can you can talk as long as you want, you know, keeping in mind your listeners' interest in what you're saying and, and you know, how compelling what you're saying is. And, and, and so we just we talk about the movie until we're done talking about it, you know. And I think that forces you to really get specific. Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll have more with our guest Adam Kipinar, host of Film Spotting, which you can find at filmspotting.net. Please do stay tuned. You're just hurting yourself with this rambunctious behavior. Money point seven.
We're back with guest Adam Kempinar, co-host of the popular movie podcast Film Spotting, again, which you can find at filmspotting.net. So the highest grossing picture of the year so far is still Alice in Wonderland, a fact that is at least partially attributable to the higher ticket prices for 3D features. Toy Story 3 is approaching that total gross and will probably pass it by week's end, also due in part to 3D prices. Now a lot has been written lately about 3D being a trend or a fad that hinders more films than it helps. The Last Airbender in particular had a 3D conversion that was one element of many in that film that was critically savaged, and filmmakers like Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder have recently gone on record as saying they were hesitant to apply the post-conversion technology to their own films. Now with all the talk of 3D these days, is there a budding backlash among audiences and filmmakers toward 3D, or can we expect to see 3D around for the foreseeable future? Well, you know, I think we're going to see it around. Uh, I think, you know, as long as they can get higher prices and as long as there is something that um, audiences see as, um, I don't know, you know, gimmicky is the right word, but they, they, there's a hook in being able to see a film, you know, maybe like Avatar in IMAX, you know, with the 3D glasses, then it turns the film-going experience into truly that, an, an experience, something different than just going to your your normal multiplex and seeing a film and so I think people are going to definitely continue experimenting with it and, and trying to capitalize off it so I'm not sure I see it really going anywhere soon my, my own feelings about it uh, you know we talked about Toy Story 3 a little bit ago on the show and you know one of the things that I was really kind of pleasantly surprised about was how unobtrusive the, the 3D was and, and of course then you're praising them for that, and then at the same time you're thinking, well, then why was it in 3D at all? You know, if there really is no um, compelling reason, if there's no, if there's objects aren't flying out at you at the screen, and you're not going, whoa, you know, then why are you wearing these 3D glasses in the first place? And I actually did see that movie again uh, a couple days after I saw it originally, and saw it just normal, you know, without the glasses, and it was, it was really the same experience. I had just as much fun watching it. I didn't feel like anything was missing. Um, it, it really was exactly the same for me, and, and I, I think if I had seen it that way originally, I still would have loved the movie as much as I did. So it was one of those things where I was really happy to see that they, they didn't overdo the 3D, that Pixar just kind of, I thought they used it to what it should be, and that it allows us to, to maybe play around with the frame a little bit and, and uh, play around with perspective a little bit and focus in terms of kind of the depth of field on the frame but it's not something we're going to use so people, you know, again, kind of feel like things are flying out at them all the time. And, and, and I actually did forget I was wearing the glasses watching the film, which is the first time that's ever happened. But again, that just kind of makes you think, well, then why didn't they just put it out in, in 2D? You know, because it, for me, it was the, the same experience. So it's one of those things I, I can just say, me personally, when I, when I find out that a movie's going to be in 3D, I don't, it doesn't get me excited. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't get really pumped up to go see a 3D movie and, and put those glasses on. Um, I just find that it doesn't really add a whole lot for me. Well, and I thought it was funny on your Toy Story 3 episode during your intro. You mentioned that you tricked your co-host Maddie into yeah. going to the 3D screening because yep. I guess that he's a little more skeptical about the format. Um, yep. But I, I, I'm curious because you've mentioned on your show several times you have uh, children who you like to take to the movies i don't know what how they feel about 3d if they have an opinion or not uh but uh, you know when you're when you're taking your kids do you factor in when you're having to buy these 3d movie prices and i'm sure that there are imax theaters in chicago uh, yeah. do you factor that in i mean when you're making these trips with your family yeah. you're talking about an investment every time you go yeah you know it, for me it isn't it isn't so much the the investment that i worry about it's actually a, a more practical concern which is the, the, the glasses themselves. And when you have young kids, and I have three um, who are eight is the oldest and, and six and then, and then three, and they, the, the eight-year-old can keep the glasses on and, and not fidget and, and not really care and enjoy the film. The six-year-old and the three-year-old, you know, as you can imagine, just being young, they, they, they're constantly taking the glasses on and off, or, or you know, my daughter Sophie even sometimes will she'll find herself putting them on and off and then she'll put them back on and she'll try to reach out to the screen. It's almost like they're not watching the film, actually, you know, and, and, and the, my youngest, he really does have a hard time. He, he just can't keep them on. You know, he's three and they're, they're inevitably on the floor and we're picking them up and it's just like, we've, we've made a conscious decision that if it's, 
only in 3D, we're probably not going to go see it, actually. And I, and I know from talking to my, my sister and brother-in-law, they're the same way. I don't know how many other families are, are out there like that, but I, I have to imagine it's just it's hard enough taking young children to the theater and hoping they're going to sit still and watch a movie. You add something like those glasses in the mix where they really have to be wearing them or else they're going to be staring at at least a somewhat blurry screen. It just adds another element of, of distraction and, uh, and really can, can be problematic. So, yeah, I really try to focus on with my kids seeing only the 2D version. Our guest is Adam Kipinar of WBEZ, Chicago Public Radio's Film Spotting, which you can find at filmspotting.net. Now, the folks at the Slash Filmcast, they recently talked about how branded tentpole studio releases this summer have either failed or underwhelmed with the exception of Toy Story and Twilight, and the, you can throw the Karate Kid in there, too. Uh, yeah. th that would include Sex and the City 2, Shrek 4, The A-Team, Robin Hood, and even Get Him to the Greek to some extent. Now, for a better part of this decade, Hollywood has relied on these sequels, remakes, and reboots, some of which have paid huge dividends, but we can sort of gather that if studios don't have to flex, they, they really at this point don't have to flex their creative muscles if they want to turn a massive profit, they really have no problem recycling this old material yeah. so long as they cash in. Now, thanks to the enormous success of The Dark Knight, the global financial and critical success, uh, Christopher Nolan has been given $200 million to make Inception, this passion project based on a wholly original idea. And without reading too many of these spoiler-filled reviews that are popping up now, we know that it's about these secret agents of some sorts who specialize in penetrating people's dreams to steal their ideas. If Inception really is the hit that the studio is hoping for, uh, that'll make two consecutive years where the so-called original stories dominate the market and perhaps continue to pave the way for this much-needed increase in original storytelling. Now, Adam, do you think that this kind of pressure is on Inception to perform to sort of pave that road? Or really, what could it mean if this film does deliver? Well, that, that's a great question. It's funny because we were, we were actually, we, Maddie and I were on a, a show last night. We were, we were interviewed uh, at a kind of a talk show here in Chicago, and one of the questions someone brought up there will be blood and asked that question about a film like that. How come those movies don't get made? You know that often. How come you don't see um, projects like that that are really that just robust and ambitious and uh, you know smart uh, getting made that often? And, and we didn't really have a definitive answer. And you know, for me, I, I think it's because actually of a director like a P.T. Anderson, who just has a force of will and has the talent and the ambition to make a film like that and insist on a film like that. And I think Christopher Nolan, obviously. He's much higher up in the stratosphere uh, as a director because of the success of the Batman movies than a guy like P.T. Anderson who can kind of force his way and get a film like that made. But, you know, that was, that was kind of my explanation. Um, you know, and, and Maddie, Maddie just thinks that, you know, that is the way Hollywood is, as you were saying, that they're, they're not going to let those kind of projects happen very often. They're going to focus on the things they, they can rely on, what they think they know. This was successful before, so it will be successful again. Inception... It, it looks amazing, and I, I cannot wait to see it. Um, and I, I see it Monday. Um, they're having one one advanced screening in Chicago uh, for press, and I really am obviously looking forward to it. My most anticipated summer movie, and for some of the reasons you mentioned, just because it seems wholly original, and it's Christopher Nolan, and the cast is incredible, and and you just don't know much about it. And I'm sure that people have already been dissecting it all over the internet. I tend to avoid that stuff anyway. I'm going to really avoid it in this case because I want to go into this film as much as possible with a completely open mind and not know what's going on. But that's what I really love about it is that I don't know anything about Inception. I really don't. I mean, except for what you said and who the cast is, I, I, I don't know what to expect. And you think about every other time you see a movie trailer, you pretty much know the entire film from start to finish and, and everything that's going to happen and all the surprises just based on watching that, that two-minute trailer. And so that's, that's what I love about Inception. It really has me intrigued. But I'm worried about if we're going to put all this pressure on Nolan to kind of be the savior of Hollywood, kind of be this, this shining beacon, as this one director who's going to get a passion project made, a big-budget passion project made that's going to, that's going to somehow make Hollywood see the light and realize that they should be focusing on these kind of films and not the Karate Kids and the 18s and films like that, because my, my own feeling, and again, I don't read 
a lot of the trades or know what's going on business-wise. I don't know what the expectations are, but just because it's Christopher Nolan and just because it's got DiCaprio and some other people in it, I don't actually think that matters much to the average moviegoer. Um, I, uh, directors behind a film, that I think that's something more critics and film buffs care about. That gets them out to go see movies. Even a cast is something that probably gets a lot of those people out to see movies. We've seen recently there maybe was a time where simply having a certain name attached to a film, you know, one of those A-list stars, the Tom Cruise, the Brad Pitt, whatever, that could guarantee an opening. You don't see that anymore. There's been this summer, last summer, I don't have any examples in front of me, but certainly you can cite these cases of saying, wait a second, this should be a slam dunk. It has this guy in it. How could this movie not make money? And it, and it didn't. Uh, you can't just rely on, on the star to carry you anymore. And even a movie like Inception, Leonardo DiCaprio isn't really the, the pinup Titanic boy that he was. I don't think he's drawing the, you know, Edward and Jacob crowd out anymore to to films. And you look at the other people who, who are in the movie, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ellen Page, and, and those are, again, I think people that are more curious and more uh, interested, more interesting to film buffs, probably, than the average moviegoer. And I just feel like it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Nobody knows what it is. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe they're going to be intimidated. Maybe audiences are actually going to be a little intimidated by a film like that and say, I don't know, actually, that I'm willing to spend my, my beautiful summer day watching a film like this seems, that seems that intense or, or that obtuse. Uh, and that, that's my concern. I, I mean, I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm absolutely hoping I'm wrong, and the movie makes a ton of money, and people really respond to it. But I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it opened to less fanfare than we're all hoping for. So where do you stand personally on Christopher Nolan as a contemporary filmmaker? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think, he's, I think he's right up there. And we, we recently did our, our top five directors of the decade, and Nolan was, was, was certainly in the running. Not, he didn't make my top five. Um, I know he would make a lot of people's top five. He was actually probably not in my top ten either, if I think back, but he was in the top 12 or 13. He was a guy that I certainly considered, and you just have to look at at his body of work, and obviously Memento was one of my top five favorite films of the decade, and you add in the Batman movies, I'm not as huge of a fan of Batman Begins as a lot of people are, Um, The Dark Knight is is certainly a a, a really fascinating film and and deserving of the the accolades that it gets, and a film like The Prestige is also one of those movies that, that really warrants multiple viewings and, and shows, you know, such great technique and he's, you know, he's just one of those directors who clearly, you know, knows how to use the medium and is, is, is trying to challenge audiences and there's really not enough of that and so he's, he's a director I certainly put, put right up there um, with anybody as one of those guys who, if Christopher Nolan's making a film, then I'm going to go see it, uh, that I'm going to be interested. It doesn't matter what the subject matter could be. It could be, you know, the A-Team, <laughs> an A-Team remake. Uh, but if no one's directing it, well, he's got to do something interesting with it, and I'll go check it out. So, yeah, he's certainly one of the guys I really respect. Well, Adam, before we let you go, I want to ask you one question about the state of film criticism right now. Uh, it's sort of been on everybody's minds, or at least film critics' minds. They've kind of started this uh, open dialogue that's lasted for uh, part of the first half of this year. And I personally struggle to decide whether or not established film critics are kind of becoming irrelevant now that it seems anyone who wants to can review movies thanks to the internet. And with online forums like blogs, Twitter, literally everybody has a voice and it's up to them to determine which one matters the most. And at some point I think we as moviegoers decide that movie reviews don't hold as much substance or influence as they once did. And I think RottenTomatoes.com certainly reflects the current status of criticism. I mean, you take one look at a single film's page it might have foreshadowed the emergence of a site like Twitter because there you have these series of blurbs or tweets found on the screens. They offer a ton of one-sentence critiques that sum up the experiences of various movies and critics. Uh, Do you think this is the future of movie criticism, this one-sentence blurb? Do you think that we still turn to guys like Roger Ebert or other notable celebrity film critics to make our decisions for us? Yeah, it it is a really interesting debate and one that has you're, you're right been raging now for for a while and actually it, it goes back even it's funny because you think about this as just such a modern uh, current thing it's all about the internet well i remember reading an article in film comment 
from the 1970s. Uh, I didn't read it until the 1990s, but I was reading an old issue, and there was an article about, it was Roger Ebert basically in an argument with Richard Corliss, the, the time critic, and Richard Corliss was, was arguing that TV was the downfall of film criticism, that shows like Siskel and Ebert, where uh, you know, they, they give their star rating to a film that, that's just going to kill film criticism. You know, so it, it's really funny that you know now, 40 years later, we're basically having the exact same conversation. Um, it's just the the, the medium the, or the media has has changed a little bit in that time, or changed a lot in that time. But it's always going to be there. And and I don't know. I, I have a little bit of a different perspective on it. I guess maybe coming from the fact that when you hear a lot of quote unquote professional critics bemoan the rise of the amateur. Um, Obviously, I'm one of those people who technically was someone who started as an amateur by starting my own show, by not having an affiliation with anyone at first. Uh, I didn't have anyone saying, you're a film critic. I just said I was a film critic and did my show, and people started to listen. And so with that perspective, I always find it funny when people use terms like that, like professional and amateur and what is and what isn't uh, a film critic, because the fact is, what makes someone who's been writing about film for 20 years a film critic, th- there's no test to pass. There's no college degree you need. Um, it's ultimately about whether or not the work that you do is something that people find interesting, whether the content truly does speak for itself. And the fact is, just because a newspaper has been employing you for 20 years to write reviews doesn't mean what you've been doing is actually any good. You know, It doesn't mean that you're actually doing much of a service. And, and I, I sometimes feel like critics have kind of done it to themselves. I mean, I, I've read a lot of different critics over the years, and I, I feel like what, what's allowed for sites like Rotten Tomatoes is too many critics have seen themselves as box office, I don't know what the right word is, but as, as drivers of the box office. They, they feel like their job is to help push people to make a decision about, about what movie they should see, what movie they shouldn't see. And I do understand that. When, when a critic says something like, hey, people read my reviews or people see my, my stuff, they want to know whether or not they should get a babysitter this weekend to go see a movie. I, that's very noble that you're trying to do that, but in trying to do that, you're basically painting your entire audience with a broad brush, and you're saying every mid-30s person who has two children and wants to get a babysitter and go see a movie, they like X kind of movie and I'm reviewing for them. Well, you can't review for them. You, you don't know actually what their tastes are. You don't know what they want in a film. You don't know how they're different than their neighbor next door, or the person down the street. And, and that's why it's actually folly to try and speak for those people or to try to communicate directly to those people as if you know, you're saying, hey, I, I know what you want in a film and this isn't it. Go see something else. I, I think too many critics have actually fallen into that boat. And when they use comments like that, they say things like, Film criticism isn't relevant anymore because they're not driving box office. You know, they're they're not actually helping to, to really persuade people one way or another. I actually always say, who cares? Like, why is that a why is that a concern? Why why is the film critic upset or not whether or not they're helping to to push people to see a movie? Um, I mean, there's that natural instinct of, of course, when I love a film, you know, when I love a movie, a little movie like Cyrus. Um, the Duplass brothers and John C. Riley and Jonah Hill. When I love a little movie like that that I don't think enough people are going to see, of course I naturally want to urge people to see it. That's just a, a, an instinct. Um, but at the same time, that's not my overriding, my overriding concern. It gets back to what we talked about before, which is it should be about ideas. Ultimately, it should be a conversation. It should be about us hopefully bringing up something on our show, making a even if it's just one thing, even if in 20 minutes we only say one thing that really you find interesting, if it makes you think about that a little bit more or want to want to research that a little bit more or whatever, then, then we've done our job. That, that's really the way I look at it. Is it's just about, again, it's about the experience we had with the film and then what you can take away from that. And, and, and that really is all that it amounts to. It, it, it's our experience. It's our opinion. And... Hopefully, there's some entertainment value there in listening to us explain that. And hopefully, there's also something intellectually. You know, hopefully, you're getting something that that challenges you a little bit. I'm not saying we're always successful, but that's what we're trying for. And again, I I think once critics kind of free themselves from these shackles of, the box office and, and, oh, I can't believe people are seeing this movie and, or, or they're not seeing this movie and 
my reviews didn't didn't do anything. Well, you know, I, I, I guess again, I just don't see why that 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 really matters. If if your your bigger goal is is something um, you know a little more a little more altruistic, almost. I mean, it sounds kind of idealistic to to say that it should be this kind of marketplace of ideas, but that's really what it is. I mean, our show. I, I think the the reason a lot of audiences, uh, a lot of um, people who read reviews get mad at critics sometimes is because they feel like the critic is sort of up on this ivory tower bestowing their opinion on the masses. And if they disagree, well then, you know, this critic is an idiot and, and you know, how dare they tell me that my reaction is wrong. And there's this real disconnect there. I think one of the, the things we try to do on our show and one of the beauties of the, the format of podcasting is that once we start... The, once, once we put that review out to the public, that's just the beginning of the conversation. It's not like a lot of times with a newspaper review where you write the review and then the people read it and end of story, move on to the next thing. We review it, we put the discussion out there, and then that gets all of our listeners thinking about that film, thinking about what we had to say, writing in with their responses to the film. Those responses then generate listener feedback that we share on the show, which then generates more listener feedback, sometimes people responding to the people responding to our review. Um, and it, again, it, it pushes the conversation not only forward, but pushes it in different directions. And, and so I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but that kind of amateur professional thing, I always found uh, a really kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, a fallacy, uh, not even something really worth debating in some ways, because ultimately the only, the, the true sign of a professional just means you're really getting paid for what you do. It does, doesn't necessarily signify that you um, actually have any more worth than anybody else. And the fact is, if, if you're a quote-unquote amateur, but you're, you're provoking more debate or you're provoking more discussion and people are actually really considering what you have to say, then you're more valuable than that quote-unquote professional critic. Well, I highly encourage uh, folks who listen to this Pod, or this podcast, this radio show, to go out and seek film spotting. I mean, it's at filmspotting.net, and it's just something that anybody who's watched any movie before or is a great lover of film, it's something that they're definitely going to enjoy. And I think that you two are really the best at what you do. Um, and I don't mean just podcasts. I mean movie critics in general. I think you guys are terrific, so please do keep up the good work. And, Adam, you've been incredibly generous with your time uh, this morning. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to what Film Spotting has in store for us uh, from now on. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Hopefully, I can be on again. And uh, I just want to say too that you know you guys keep up the good work. You obviously have a good show. And uh, College Radio is actually where I got my start. It's where the the makings of um, of Film Spotting came from. Where KRUI, the Iowa City uh, radio station, when I was a grad student there at the University of Iowa, started a show called Burn Hollywood Burn. It was a two-hour weekly show. Uh, and I had two co-hosts, and that's where the top five came out of. That's where Massacre Theater started. All the things that we actually do on film spotting now that are kind of some of our signature segments, we tested out. You know, I tested out uh, back on Burn Hollywood Burn on, uh, on KRUI, and it was great fun. So keep up the good work. Thanks so much. And, uh, yes, please do join us again if you ever feel, feel like it. We would appreciate it. But thanks Will again, do. Adam. I only came here to do two things, man. Kick some ass and drink some beer. <laughs> I think we're almost out of beer. Ronnie Point Seven. on Aspect Radio, uh, our guest Adam Kempinar left us after the last segment there, and uh, Corey, I, I'm giddy, man, like, I really was excited that uh, Mr. Kempinar was able to join us this week, because I'm an avid listener of film spotting, and hopefully uh, you will, you know, start listening to it more uh, now that we've had a chance to have a conversation with yeah, the host absolutely. here. Yeah, so. That was, I mean, that was, that was a great conversation. It really was, and I mean, that, that what you get from Adam here is pretty much what you get on his show uh, even twice more because, I mean, Maddie is 
really just as talented in terms of breaking down these movies and uh, offering this very articulate analysis. And I think it's funny that I say that because on Film Spotting, not too long ago, I don't know, maybe it was a year or so ago, they have these little segments. They have one called Maddie's Movie Minute where they just offer these little capsules, capsule reviews uh-huh. in a minute. And then Adam tried it too, and I think it was Adam's Articulate Analysis. Uh, and that, that was pretty funny. He got uh, torn apart by Maddie uh, for that name. And they have these different theme songs too. But again, thanks to Adam and um, can't wait for their Inception conversation. Uh, we can only hope to aspire to equal what they are capable of doing. But it's time for our DVD pick. So, Corey, what you got? Well, this past week wasn't a, a big release week, but it did feature uh, two movies that I think are well worth discussing. Uh, the first is uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, the Swedish import, uh, Swedish language version of this very popular novel that I think is uh, taking America by storm somewhat. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting film. It's a very good film um, that rumor has it David Fincher is planning to remake for American audiences. Now, not being familiar with the books, I really didn't have any idea where the story was going. Needless to say, it, it gets more into, like, seven type territory or the Silence of the Lambs territory than I would have ever guessed, you know, like a popular beach novel would. Um, And it's at times very disturbing, but it's a very interesting mystery. And so fans of that genre should, you know, you do well to check it out, I think. Um, And the second film that came out last week is uh, Tom Ford's A Single Man, uh, which I find, um, well, one, it's a beautiful, beautiful Blu-ray transfer. So if you've made the upgrade to high def, uh, that'd be worth checking out in itself. Um, but second, uh, it's it's a very interesting movie. It improves with repeat viewings. This is uh, the film that got Colin Firth his Oscar nomination last year. And uh, you know when you hear that Tom Ford, who uh, for those not in the know was the artistic director at Gucci and is a noted fashion designer, uh, made his directorial debut, you know you might. You might sense that, that, you know, it might look nice, but there's not going to be much heart to it. I'm pleased to say that that's not the case at all with a single man. It's it's very impassioned. It's very well-written, very sensitive, really, really good filmmaking for, for a debut director. And I haven't seen it yet. I actually have it on Redbox right now. Uh-huh. I got it last night. Uh, but in terms of what I've heard about what happens in the movie to the characters, I don't think that the movie could succeed at all if it didn't have... Uh, that sort of impassioned filmmaking that you're talking about, uh, because I think that this is about tragedy, and it's right. about how people react even when they have to sort of uh, keep their emotions to themselves. Right. It's it's very much a mood picture. I'd I'd put it in the same league as uh, as the films of Wong Kar Wai, uh, in the mood for love and and uh, 2046 and the like, um, and it sort of weaves that same I don't know emotional tapestry that his pictures do. Um, while retaining, you know, the beautiful cinematography. Uh, I think this film was actually shot by, if I'm not mistaken, the same cinematographer who shoots Mad Men. And I think that Tom Ford actually sort of took a lot of the Mad Men crew for this sh- for his film. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously if you're a fan of that show, you'll want to check this movie out. But it's, I mean, it's a little bit more obviously intensive and it's a similar time period as well right. in costumes in the 1960s, or, right right at the height of the cuban missile crisis okay so i i, I just can't recommend this more highly mm-hmm. um for people who are I, I suppose inclined to like films like this this is one you'll like okay does that do it that does it okay well at home right now i have the asphalt jungle from 1950 i think it was 50 or 55 i think it's 50 Directed by John Huston, starring the great Sterling Hayden, who a lot of people probably remember from The Godfather as the police chief uh, that Michael deals with halfway through. And Jack D. Ripper. Right, and uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I'm also going to rewatch the early Stanley Kubrick film The Killing from 1956, also starring Hayden. So I'm obviously on a bit of a heist kick, actually, after listening to Film Spotting's marathon reviews of several films from that genre. That's that's cool. Yeah, th- those are definitely worth a listen as well. Um, but anyway, getting into some announcements, opening nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cop Hollywood 16 this week, Predators, starring Adrian Brody, Lawrence Fishburne, Topher Grace, produced by 
Robert Rodriguez and directed by Nimrod Antal. I think we're probably both going to end up seeing this this weekend. Yeah, probably today. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty excited. I, I, I don't know why. Um, but I, I'm glad to see, I don't know, after the abominations that were the Alien vs. Predator movies, I'm glad to see these franchises sort of get back on track what with this and then the uh in development alien prequel that ridley scott is Mm -hmm. working on uh i'm pretty pumped yeah i thought it was interesting that rodriguez and maybe antal went on the record saying that we forgot about the avp movies Mm -hmm. and this is uh, really working as a sequel to predator and predator 2 the danny glover movie which i think is pretty underrated i enjoyed that and it it's would, a fun movie. It would thrill me if somehow, and really this isn't possible if you've seen Predator 2, if somehow Gary Busey wound up in uh, Predators. He's still got something in him, I think. <laughs> Somebody's got to use him. Uh, and a movie that I definitely want to see, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the theater to see Despicable Me, the animated feature starring Steve Carell. Uh, are you into that at yeah, all? Yeah, I'll probably see it. I don't know when, but... Um you know, I, I'll see anything that Steve Carell is involved with at least at least once, at least you know whenever it reaches DVD. Right, because you like to get smart. Uh, I, I actually did. I have no I have no shame <laughs> in admitting that. I think it's a funny movie. I think the best thing he's done in a while was sitting in for Stephen Colbert the other night yeah. for the Carell Corral. Yeah, that's pretty funny. You, you know what? I, I and this is this is a strange reaction, but every time I see Steve Carell cast like as the star of a movie, as like a, an above the title name, um, you know, as as with Date Night, I, I sort of think to myself, huh, when has he ever proven to open a movie? And then I realize, oh yeah, yeah, like every single time. That well, uh, it, yeah. Basically. Well, I mean, Danny Real Life didn't... It, it was a modest hit, actually. Yeah, it did okay. Uh, it did okay. It was critically well-received. Uh, Date Night, not a not a huge winner. It's almost at $100 million and, and Fox is pushing it. Right. It's still but in theaters. Evan Almighty was a big hit, and 40-Year-Old Version... Yeah, Evan Almighty was big. I, I didn't realize that. And, you know, maybe I'll eat crow a little bit later, but I'm pretty sure that cleared $100 million. I know it had a... I think, I'm pretty sure it had a $100 million... It was, it was expensive. Yeah, I think that was the problem. It was too expensive. Right, and forty-year-old version obviously cleared a hundred. Right. I mean, so. that's that's the one. For some reason, like, I I never. I guess I'm so used to Steve Carell as TV actor and Steve Carell as you know Michael Scott, that uh, I never really remember that um, he does movies and they do very well. Um, and I always have this this moment when he's coming out with a new film where I'm like, oh, what what is this? Why Steve Carell? I mean, I love Steve Carell, though, so it's, it's really kind of inexplicable. Yeah, I, I like him, too, and, and it's interesting that you said whenever you see his name is above the title and he is the lead for these comedies, sometimes mm-hmm. I have the reaction of, well, I guess I'll see it, or, you know, I guess I'm interested, because I think that Steve Carell, honestly, unless it's something like 40-Year-Old Version, which I think is still his strongest movie, I think that he works so well in small doses, and... Obviously, you can look back at Anchorman right. and uh, even Bruce Almighty, where he really stole Jim Carrey's thunder right. uh, with his performance, and also got his incredible work on The Daily Show. Yeah. Um, so, or I, Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, exactly. I thought that he was robbed of a nomination. I actually that year. strongly agree with that. Yeah. So, but he's still Steve Carell. He still makes us laugh. So I'm not going to complain if I see that he's in a movie. Um, but yeah, I mean. Let's also remind people, Corey, that Toy Story 3 is still in theaters. At least for another week. This right. is probably the best option right now. Yeah, absolutely. Unless Predators just rules all. Um, also keep an eye out for the Bama Art House Summer Movie Series, which continues with 2009's Oscar winner for foreign language film The Secret in Their Eyes next Tuesday, July 13th at 8 p.m. at the Bama Theater. I'm going to try to go. I, I, I've heard mixed things about the film. Um... Phil, my friend Phil Owen, who was just in Los Angeles, um, saw this out there at a screening with the Q&A with the director. I think it was the creative screenwriting screening, actually, where they record their podcast. Well, um, you have a uh, special connection to that film in that you blindly picked it to win the foreign language Oscar. It wasn't blindly. It right. Was, I, I, that was an educated, uh, an educated guess, and it worked out for me, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, only missed three this year, but I didn't enter any Oscar pools. Hey, and to interrupt you real fast, Evan Almighty made $100 million domestic. 
30 million opening. On a budget of what? Uh, I would guess 100 million dollars. Uh, oh, excuse me, 175 million dollars. Evan Almighty, thank you very much, sir. Foreign gross of 72 million. It did not make back its budget. Bummer. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve Carell's still doing okay. Right. Um, well, if you have any feedback, you can email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @aspectradio or twitter.com slash aspectradio. Download this and other episodes of the show at our, on our blog at, at aspectradio.tumblr.com. Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. And if you missed our guest, Adam Kempinar, in the previous segments of the show, I do suggest that you, t- you uh, check that out because it was a great conversation. Uh, we'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook, so if that's your poison, look for it there. Yeah, and don't forget to visit our buddy Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you'll find some cool podcasts and a really fun blog that sometimes features Corey's reviews. I'm thinking about writing one for Twilight. I think Matt would appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and you can catch Corey and my, uh, or my and Corey's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in every Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. And we'll spend all week struggling to pick between Inception and The Sorcerer's Apprentice to review. We hope not to let you down. I forgot that movie comes out this week. Wednesday. I guess I'll go see it. Yeah, enjoy. And that's starring <laughs> Matt Scalici, uh, who some people confuse <laughs> with Jay Baruchel. I don't know why, but Matt, we hope you have a good week, man. And be sure to visit filmspotting.net, where you're going to really find some of the best movie podcasts out there hosted by our guests today, Adam Kempinar and Maddie Robinson. Uh, we want to thank Adam again for coming on today. And then until next week, for Corey Craft, I'm Ben Flanagan. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to tune in to our one-hour special on WVUA where we make our big decision on whether or not we want to see Predators or Despicable Me this weekend. Prime time. A lot of speculation there in terms of our big decision. So that's a one-hour special, and I think it's highly necessary. 8 p.m. We're taking our talents to Despicable Me, I think. So... You have that to look forward to, people. I'm going home now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it, but I'm going home right now.